Remembering Iraq 20 years on, once a, a literate and a functioning society in the Middle East, uh, one that was uh, oil rich and blessed with resources, Blair said the intervention will determine the pattern for international politics for years to come. Well, interventions have been normalised both by the West and now in Russia and Ukraine. It's now more relevant than ever to remember and really understand what happened all those years ago. This is the Untribal Podcast. Welcome to the Untribal Podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. Um, what What's the reason behind bringing this podcast today? Well, first and foremost, I was really young when the Iraq War happened and I, I, I often see young people very flippantly make ethical judgments about, you know, soldiers and people that serve their country. And it's very easy for a generation that have been so far away from war. You know, we've never had the threat of conscription. You know, Britain. You know, we've never have to. We've never had to do it. Um, you know, even even war in modern times in in Ukraine isn't anywhere near us. We're we're not obliged to go and fight there. Um, and I wanted to sort of send out a message to to the those people that are truly affected by the Iraq war that we you know we will understand we'll try and understand this abhorrent war and we, we really we really will try and reflect on what it's what it's done to these people and understands the 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 psychology of of people that went and served for their country during this time it's easy for us to in hindsight say oh, how bad was that war if you weren't in protest you're you're a murderer. Well, I just wanted to put out the, a message to ordinary folk, just like you and I, that went to serve in Iraq, truly believing that they, they were going there for the greater good. You know, I'm not suggesting that the protests against the war weren't noble. In fact, if I was old enough, I would like to think I'd been a part of those protests. But imagine being a soldier that you know that fully believed they were going to protect their nation. You know that they, they were forcing medical shots on them to protect them from the from the chemical weaponry, which we now later know there was little, if 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 any, flimsy evidence to suggest that there actually was weapons of mass destruction of that kind. You know, imagine being indoctrinated to that extent. Where you think you're you're going and you don't have a choice to serve your country because if you don't who will? You know, who will stop this mass murderer? This this evident threat that the politicians have said we need to address this now. We have exhausted all options and our only route is to go to war. And you really believe you're going over there in in in, in the aim of capturing this mass murderer to acquire these weapons of mass destruction and make the world a safer place for everyone else. Imagine the mental stability of of those people thinking that it was about that, or, or still hoping and praying it's about that. And yet, 
you know, after so much analysis and and review and, and reports, we we know there was a, a hell of a lot more going on than just that. Um, so I want to pay tribute to those people, you know, that, that went and served in Iraq and and steered away from this notion that it, it wasn't brave of them to go to Iraq and 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 in the, in the name of protecting their country and their family and their children and their and their fellow Brit. It's not something. It's not something I would imagine I would do myself. It's easy for me to say I've got options in life. You know, I, I, I'm I'm choosing to go into politics, and I'm I'm very lucky I've got that choice. But some people don't. Um, and I wanted to pay tribute to that today. Um, to get into the psyche of those soldiers that are still having sleepless nights over the Iraq War twenty years later, still relying on sleeping pills. Still going o over there, and when they come back, not getting the heroes' welcome that that past generations perhaps did after the Second World War, for example, you know, coming back and not having the support from the government that sent them there, you know, um, you know, not 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 having any, like still trying to prove yourself to to government agencies that you've got a legitimate disability in the PTSD that you've suffered because of this war. I wanted to pay tribute to those people today because it's those people that are truly still feeling the effects of this war. Not even to mention those uh, over in Iraq. And as I alluded to, it's, uh, it's more important than ever um, because of what we're seeing in Ukraine. Uh, we've lost all confidence in the international community. Our, our, our will to act is, is shattered. The establishments that we created after the Second World War, you know, previously it was the, the League of Nations, you know, the Second World War, you know, driven a significant, you know, rethink in, in how we conduct ourselves and, and, and everyone conducts themselves amongst each other in the, the international community. And we created the United Nations and we, we had the UN Charter and there was this universal belief that we won't have military interventions uh, across borders without, without just cause. Um, how naive were we back then? Because we created language, like we we have the responsibility to protect these people. You know, you know, the, 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 these these countries don't have the same sovereignty as we do. You know, they're committing war crimes against people. So we need to act. It's it's in our authority to act. And by the way, this is exactly what Russia are doing today in Ukraine, albeit, you know for far more questionable motives. But they're citing us. They're citing the Iraq war and and how we've paved the way for this kind of behaviour. The the several interventions in countries abroad since then. We've got so many add-ons of what's right and wrong now. You know, we're we're it's gonna be interesting how we, we reset again because it's absolutely necessary to we we can't have a, a security council making these decisions that in which Russia and China have permanent membership. We can't have that. Um, interesting uh, times to come and, uh, and very dark times that we're living in indeed. Um, some argue, perhaps many argue, that this all began in 9-11. I would disagree, respectfully, because I think it does a disservice to this wider trend of... You know, the West, countries like America and Britain constantly making moves to reaffirm 
the, the balance of power in international order. You know, we, we talked about colonial times of the past. We talk about colonial times of the past and how they're gone. Well, why aren't we intervening? Why aren't we doing more to disrupt that balance of power? You know, why is it that these big superpowers are still military intervening in smaller countries at their own will? You know, is that what Iraq was all about? Setting that trend? And if it was about morals, then, you know, why didn't we do more against Iraq in the 80s and the 90s? You know, when they, when they intervened and in, uh, they, they took over parts of Iran and they took over parts of Kuwait. And there was hundreds of thousands of just random murders. Just at, at random. We're talking about taking random people out to the desert, strapping bombs to them, and videoing them getting killed just to send a message. Where was the action then? People will point to, obviously, you know, Vietnam was still fresh, for example. Even the Second World War was relatively still fresh as well. You know, maybe we were, you know, more obliged to adhere to the to the principles set out in the UN Charter all those all those decades ago. But if it's a question of morals, it does make you wonder. Saddam Hussein, uh, the politicians felt the world would be a safer place without this heinous murder. I mean, that's sound logic. <laughs> I don't think anyone would dispute that, but what we're talking about now is a situation where at the expense of completely decimating a country, you know, Iraq is now immensely poorer, immensely more unstable. <laughs> and we, we initiated this regime change without any exit plan whatsoever. Um... I, th I think Alistair Campbell talked about how we, you know, we were a junior partner in the, he, he used those words, in the negotiations. It, it was America's agenda here. They were taking the reins. We we, we falsely assumed that they, they were working on a back, backup plan in the background. I, I don't know how much I believe that. I just, that just seems hard to believe. We were a junior partner and we naively thought they were coming up with a backup plan. After all the aggression, after all the, you know, urgency to act after 9-11 a couple of years before, I, 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 can't, I can't think of a world where Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell, two very intelligent people, thought, oh, no, they, they'll be coming up with a backup plan. It's fine. That doesn't, that doesn't wash well with me. And the oil, the oil, uh, the oil contracts as well. You know that that throws the motive into into doubt in itself. When uh, when the when the Saddam Hussein's statue was toppled and you know schools were being destroyed, hospitals looted, banks taken over by the people. You know, and and American soldiers, American British soldiers were told not to act, even if they wanted to. Do not act. Do not intervene here. But they were given one order. And that was to maintain the uh, Ministry of Oil in Iraq. That was the only building that was preserved. It was it was the only building that was that was ordered to be preserved and protected at all costs. And when I say all costs, I mean putting up signs for people that are largely a largely illiterate nation because of the damage done to them. Once a very literate nation, by the way, they they were you know, you know, 
icons in the in the academic world of of, of the Middle East at one point. So, so putting up signs to a largely illiterate nation to say, don't come any further or we will shoot you in the cold light of day. And it happened. We ordered our soldiers to kill these people if they came even close to these buildings. You know, think of, think of an elderly Iraqi person who can't read and is, is fleeing the, the, the chaos that's happening in the in the cities that they once lived in. You know, people running around with guns, shooting everything that they'd see, looting, there's riots, and, and an elderly person is trying to flee that. And we've got a sign saying, don't come any closer, we have to shoot you. Th- th- this, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about here. It is is absolutely scarring. And and when soldiers talk about PTSD, we're t- imagine living with that. That that thought ingrained in your memory. Shooting that child by orders of 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 whoever's above you screaming at you. Scary stuff. Um, and and yeah, and the the irony is one of the objectives of the uh, the Iraq War was to return Iraq's oil to the people who it belonged to. That was our words. Well, I, Iraq is one of the most resourced countries in the world. It's oil rich, and yet now it's it's one of the poorest countries on the planet. How 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 can that be? Where where is that money? What one would wonder. Um, yeah, I remember watching documentaries um, about the Iraq War, and you know, listening to uh, Iraqis that were are in like in all of us. You know, we were cool Britannia, the the Backstreet Boys, the Spice Girls. You know, I wonder, wonder how they think of us now. Because where is our motivation to liberate these Iraqis now? I don't see it. To contextualise the kind of country we were talking about here you know you could say you could say fuck god and not fuck saddam this is the kind of culture that saddam hussein had ingrained in in iraq um he created this paranoid culture that anyone could be listening to you and if you say anything against the government you know it really could be you that, that they're coming out to to murder next this, this is before a time where social we had social media and all that you know and i know all you lot that are using TikTok and are happy for the Chinese government to be sitting watching you. Like, I'm talking thousands of people working for the Chinese government just watching your TikToks, employed to do so. I know you are happy with that. But imagine having that at, at like at, as a tangible fear. Like, not something on your phone. Like, you, you're wandering about. You're looking at your neighbours sceptically and you, and you don't know where to look. You're that scared to say anything bad against the government. That's the kind of society that we were talking about. Um, and despite uh, Iraq's oil-rich resources, you still had severe poverty in rural, a- rural areas. This, this, this wealth was very concentrated under Saddam Hussein. You know, people still lived in poverty. And they created a culture in which human rights abuse was was commonplace. 
We're not talking about a few murders here. We're talking about 250,000 random murders. You know, like, I'm talking just to, to send a message, murdering. You know, strapping people up in bombs and filming them as they're blown into smithereens just to send a message to people. Then he, then he say a bad word about the government. And he invaded Iran in the 80s, Kuwait in the 90s. Um, George Bush and Tony Blair, well, they, th- they said enough is enough. They created a coalition to, to get rid of this guy. And, but one of the big, you know, reasons um, for wanting to get rid of this guy is that he possessed weapons of mass destruction. And what we're talking about there is like chemical weaponry. Um, why why was this so important? Well, you know, people might think is is the two hundred fifty thousand murders not enough for us to intervene? <laughs> uh, like why why wouldn't we we want to topple this regime anyway? You know, this guy is this guy is insane. This guy is murdering hundreds of thousands of people. Because this essentially counts as the kind of thing that the international community should be intervening with. If if military intervention is last resort, so be it. That's the culture that we live in. Um, the only reason I can think of is that if there's weapons of mass destruction, all of a sudden it's it's security that could affect you. It's a security that could affect us. And if it affects us, then there's no question of whether to intervene. You know, it's, it's that, that there's now nothing to be weighed up in terms of an ethical calculation. You know, the, the fact that he, he's killing innocent people, he's a mass murderer, just adds to it. But the fact that he's got these weapons of mass destruction, you know, that's that really homes in on that threat. That's a threat to international security. It's a threat to the US. It's a threat to Britain. It's now it's now an unavoidable intervention. Um. Yeah, I mean, last resort is the is the kind of thing that we we speak about a lot when we're talking about international order. Um. So we have this idea behind foreign interventions, military interventions in the modern world. You know, once all other options are exhausted, if military interventions are necessary, then so be it. The obvious the obvious flaw in this that there. Are, there, there also has to be a motive for the intervener to make this call. There's no, there's no immediate obligation for Britain or America to send troops when there's, there's genocide in foreign lands. So what was this motive? You know, this is the difficult question. This is the, the impossible ethical calculation of, of sending, you know, thousands of people to to war. And the, the insulting thing about all this. Something that makes me even ashamed to even be discussing it with any kind of perceived intuition is that it's, it's, the politicians aren't going in there. You know, ironically, it's got nothing to do with, with the politicians as soon as war begins. You know, the, those, those people on the ground, amongst the bombs, the gunfire, you know, in the, in the boot camps, screaming the word, kill each other. You know, sergeants ordering soldiers to bring back bodies. 
you know, you've heard of the term drop down and give me 20. Imagine a sergeant saying to you, you need to bring me back 20 bodies. Yeah, it's it's just it's just mental. Uh, after Saddam had gone, it was just chaos as well. There was just riots, as I said, monumental riots. Uh, I mean, and this is where I make the point that I, I'll I'll say it's worth noting that wars are often told in the perspective of the British. How does it affect us? Should we have went? What could we have done better? Should we have acted in that moment? I'll remind people that there are other perspectives at play here. You know, I, I'd encourage you to, if you're interested, read the works of, you know, the, an an an, acad an academic in Iraq, trying to understand British involvement in military engagements. Why is it even our choice to make these decisions? Why is the why does the burden of morality even lie with us? You know, Libyans, for example, hated the idea of Britain interfering with their affairs. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're grateful that G Colonel Gaddafi is, is gone, but they, they've got a history of resisting this kind of intervention. You know, how many Libyans were actually consulted in that intervention, I wonder? And this is the flaw in Iraq. You know, it was in the name of universal moral principles, but this is impossible to establish. It never will be possible. You know, there's countless legal, political, ethical considerations at the prospect of something as rage as, as war. You know, to for someone to, to come up with a line you know, that we all adhere to, it's just impossible. You know, language alone makes that impossible. And this is why political leaders like to avoid using language in the public domain to, to justify it. You know, don't, don't get me started on Theresa May and this, the, the engagements in Syria. My, my listeners will be sick of this. And you know what? I'm going to remind them again. We were sending in airstrikes as early as a couple of years ago into Syria without consultation of the British Parliament. You know, let that sink for a second here. If we were to learn anything... From this, from this war, 20 years ago, is that these dealings shouldn't be done at secret. It should be a, it should be a widely scrutinised and, and healthy discussion before we even think about making a decision on these kind of things. And Theresa May's government sending in those intra, uh, um, airstrikes without the consultation of the parliament, that set the tone now. We've now reneged on everything we learned all those years ago. Fair play to David Cameron. He, he adhered to those principles that at least, if we learn anything from this war, at least if we're thinking about a decision like that, let's at least consult the parliament and have a conversation about it. At, at, at minimum, let's do that. And Theresa May's government threw that out the window when we sent those airstrikes into Syria and we continue to do so. And guess what? It's not in the mainstream media. Oh, God. And, you know, I, I go back to the moral principles. And it's a very Kantian view of the world. You know, that, that we have these, you know, inherent feelings of what's good and what's bad in, out there. You know, this is what determines how we 
you discuss what's right and wrong. You know, it's not all, you know, consequential calculations of, you know, what will happen if you do X, Y, and Z. There's just something inside you that tells you some things aren't right. And I truly believe that. But imagine me trying to explain that to someone in Libya whose town's been absolutely destroyed. You know, they're explaining near-death experiences. And I'm trying, I'm trying to explain to them who the young inch cumbi are and how one of them managed to make a dent in their face despite them being on crutches. That's a, that's a story for another time. Um, I was listening to Alistair Campbell earlier. I think a lot of the brunt has unfairly went on him. I mean, he was the spokesperson for that government. He was very close to Tony Blair. I don't know how much of these decisions he was actually making. Um, but it was interesting to... To, to hear that you know what the thinking was behind that um and he talks a lot about the context how interventions in kosovo were a perceived success not not many not many years before um in the eyes of international law when we went and intervened in kosovo it wasn't you know it wasn't strictly legal but they they deemed it legitimate because well, it was obvious that we needed to do something about that situation and we successfully did so. So it was deemed legitimate. I don't, I don't know how much that argument holds up, though, because we're setting a president there. You know, that, that we need to think about these things. We need to think about international order. It might not be in the in the minds of, of Tony Blair or... or Alistair Campbell and when they're getting handed a report saying there's weapons of mass destruction in foreign lands but if we were to learn anything we need to think about the wider pattern of behaviour of the West and how that feeds into a structure in which the power balance is maintained in favour of us in America if he didn't have that in his mind if he didn't know about that I would I would say rubbish Um. Are clever guys, but in the heat of the moment, in the heat of that situation, you know, I can understand why why contact why context would have played a would have played a part. You know, they they weren't in charge when Iraq used chemical weapons in Kuwait and Iran. You know, but they were well aware that this guy was capable of that, and it it was well known how many people he'd killed. You know, so it, it wasn't any doubt that this guy was a was a monster that was capable of, you know, unthinkable things. Um, and he said, in a, in a sense, we did know that he had chemical weapons because he'd used them before. Um, and he, he wasn't conforming to sort of weapons inspections from the international community. Whoever, whoever does that, um, I don't know why he would conform to a, an institution set up to take power and 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 decisions away from him but that that you know that's above my pay grade unfortunately um but then we late we later found out there was no evidence for those for those weapons and that that, that, that was a big part in why we went there that was the big selling point um but he talked about something that couldn't be denied that there was a real sense of threat there was a real ta almost tangible fear like an extreme sense of paranoia that something really might kick off. 
I, and, and with with nine eleven two two years before, I, I I can understand that. I can understand why they had a, felt a sense to to do something about this. Um, but it was it was this it was the talk of being able to nation build and restore democracy and you know really really build this nation from the ground up without a clue on on how they would do it you know i did did any of them even know folk from iraq (laughs) have any of them have any idea how people live in iraq how they think the the short-sightedness of that notion to, to, to base those decisions on these kind of things just seems really implausible for such a drastic call. Um, so that, that, that was, that was certainly interesting. The, the motives, uh, Campbell was, was quite, um, you know, it felt was quite important to point out that there was a discrepancy in motive between, uh, the British and the Americans. Um, you know, he, he said there was real, I mean, he witnessed it, divisions in the American camp, um, you know, what one side of which were, were felt a sense of urgency to, to act immediately um, after the 9-11 attacks. It, it, it wasn't a case of weapons of mass destruction. It wasn't a case of anything. They just wanted to get in there. They just wanted to make an authoritative stamp to to show that they've still got a hud of things, essentially. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, the other people in there that weren't thinking like that. Um, and 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 he he was he, he repeated. He said Tony. He really believed that the threat was real. Um. But another another thing was he he really wanted to maintain that relationship with the Americans. Let's 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 not forget that. You know, it wasn't entirely in his psyche. You know, that it wasn't simply that he felt a threat that he wanted to act. He, you know, there was a motive there to stay close with the Americans as well. That was a huge project for the Americans, and he felt that our relationship would be tarnished if we didn't go hand in hand with them here blindly even if that means we we're, we're out the loop on certain things like how we're going to deal with it afterwards you know we can turn a blind eye to that because we need to maintain that relationship with the americans um and hindsight's a great thing but i wonder if that relationship would have been tarnished had we not sent troops into iraq we're going to take a short break but after that break we're going to talk about the legitimacy of military interventions more generally uh, you know how did they come to that decision is there, is there a gendered or racial undertone to these decisions stay tuned a humanitarian intervention is commonly referred to as a military action across sovereign borders that is undertaken by an organisation usually made up of nation-states with the intent of alleviating human suffering. The suffering is usually perpetrated by governing bodies within the target state provoking and or assisting the abuse of human rights. 
that is what we're talking about when we're talking about humanitarian interventions it's the it's the notion of you know taking down once solid sovereign borders in the name of humanity you know in in the name of saving people yeah, you know, in the in the eyes of international law, nation states are protected by the UN Charter and their right to sovereignty against aggression. That's something that we learned. You know, we didn't learn that. That's something we put into force after the Second World War because we simply said, "Enough." You know, this is <laughs> we can't keep doing this. We need to put a halt to this. This is mental. Um, but you know when these crimes are in question, when the war crimes that we see across the world are in question, it becomes increasingly interpreted as like an, an exceptional circumstance. So, like, your right to sovereignty is compromised in the interest of individual, universally held rights that each citizen within those borders is, is perceived to have. Um... You know, there was a series of military strikes in in the Cold War period, um, and and this is um, you know supposedly where this kind of debate came from. Uh, you know, in in the India's intervention in Bangladesh in nineteen seventy one, Vietnam's in Cambodia, uh, Can Cambodia, uh, seventy eight, Tanzania and Uganda, uh, seventy nine, and there was a focal point of criticism towards this sort of lack of adherence to the UN Charter. So, you know, there, there, was a, there was a change in attitude to say, well, we need to do something about this because people, people, you know, people, countries aren't adhering to it. You know, countries aren't bothered. We're, we're, we're finding you know, new reasons to act. Um, so the normative landscape changed. We started to say, right, well, okay, well, you've only got a right to sovereignty if you're, if you're looking after your your population, if you're committing heinous war crimes, then you know, you know that that gives that gives countries the right to do something about it. Um, this wasn't unanimous by any stretch of the imagination, and a lot of people in the south of the world, especially in Africa, who um, a lot of nations uh, begrudge uh, things like the the Security Council and and its protection of. You know, power in 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 big states like America and and Russia and China, you know, they want to see a more balanced, you know, state of play. You know, you know where there's a voice in every corner of the world, um, and and they think that you know the the things that we're putting in place just now, you know, it it doesn't do enough to disrupt that balance of power. We're not doing enough to give these people a voice, ensure these people have a voice. Now, the counter to that is if you don't give them a seat in the table, they'll just act how they want anyway. So it's not it's not an easy question. However, this structure that we put in place and our actions in Iraq, you know, contribute to this structure. They they, they didn't they didn't think about disrupting that structure that's been in place and one that echoes, you know, the time the colonial times where the where the balance of power really was with with Britain. Uh, it's, it seems well that we're talking about those kind of times in the modern day, but there are similarities to the structures that we've put in place in order to protect our say in international affairs. And we've we've abused that power. Um, more recently, it's called uh, the responsibility to protect. So this was uh, something that 
came about in the early 2000s uh, they're they're you know they're they're shrewd to to distance this from the Iraq war in particular because of the sheer bloodshed that the Iraq war had um but it was definitely in the same sort of momentum of language change um and it was it was on the simple basic notion that your right to sovereignty only exists in a world where you protect your population from war crimes and genocide and if you commit those crimes then you give up your right to sovereignty and it's on the international community you know the, the onus is on them to to respond and they have a right to act on that they don't it's not a an obligation they, they were careful to say that you know we don't have to get involved but if we want to and we we feel the need to we we certainly can and and, and iraq was the first big occasion um, instance of a military intervention um, certainly n n noteworthy uh, that happened after that um, that was introduced whether this is coincidental um, is up for debate What one thing we have learned is that it was a catastrophic misjudgment Iraq um, you know we we looked at Kosovo in some kind of admiration for military interventions, you know. We said, look look at look at that time where we acted upon ourselves, and yeah, it might have been perceived to be against international law, but tell you what, it was legitimate. So look at all those lives we saved. Look at the look at the, the dictator that we toppled. But but a consequence of this that we we sort of mixed up what what it meant. For 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 a legal intervention to be, you know, we have we have this paradox of protecting sovereignty, whilst also having this clause that means, you know, but only if you act in a certain way, and then you don't have a right to sovereignty. Um, and Kosovo really put that in the mixer, because it wasn't legal, but it was legitimate under the eyes of the United Nations. And all of a sudden, we have this grey area of what is right and wrong. Like, should we be military intervening in in foreign lands and I think to be fair when you when you look at the sort of heinous crimes that are committed in these lands a lot of people think well yeah we need to help these people um, but the way in which we do so the, the, the necessary planning that's involved in doing so and the um, you know steering away from ignorance when when steamrolling in um, is, is obviously questionable um some of some of your point to the to the fact well you know you're talking about sort of wider patterns of international order and breaking down structures that have been you know preserved over centuries let, let alone let alone even decades but and you know this notion well how can tony blair be responsible for decisions made 20 years before him you know there are different people there are different circumstances different stages in how we talk about intervention the you know I talked about how the in the nineties eighties and nineties there would have been closer trauma to Vietnam or, um, or or the Second World War even. But perhaps we can explain this recurrent pattern through gendered racialized narratives, because it feeds into a structure of our society which makes white powerful males to be relied upon to save the day. And if you don't think a man such as Tony Blair could get caught up in these power dynamics, you know, it, Alistair Campbell says he had good intentions and, you know, he really did think he was a threat and I, I, I do believe that. 
Um, you know, how, how could Tony Blair's head possibly be with the, with the centuries of old, uh, trained, trained in military intervention? How, how could his head be there when he's got such an immediate problem? Well, it's, it's, it's actually this lack of awareness that, <laughs> that contributes to it. Because Tony Blair, uh, Tony Blair probably saw himself and felt as this, this saviour of the world, standing side by side with America on the world stage believe in whatever was put in front of them to go and make those decisions to make that happen. If you don't think that America was a, a muscle flex from the Americans after 9-11 to re-establish themselves as a dominant force, if you don't think these decisions were you know, made to reinstate the, 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 the power and, and, and racial undertones of the West v. the rest, then <laughs> you know, I think you might be in denial. If you think such interventions play into this re-establishment of, of structures that echo colonial times in the name of something lighter and and dressed up like you know universal morals something we can get behind you know something to think about why did i mention gender and race well i mean if race is is pretty obvious you know we we Britain and America are predominantly white, and we're exercising our power of the of the global South of of our, you know, we we, we were oppressors back in in ancient times, and we're reinstating this by exercising our power and steamrolling these countries for ulterior gain or or allegedly ulterior gain. You know, look at the oil oil contracts that were drawn up. Um. You know, if if that isn't racism, then I don't know what is really. Even even if it is, it isn't as blatant as, you know, using language that calls it out directly. You know, you you still get structural racism. That's a huge problem in today's society, and this is another. This is it. More evidence of that. It's power to the the predominantly white, you know, Americans and 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 British citizens. It's ensuring our security by any means necessary. You know, if if there's not if there's not racial or even, you know, nation protecting undertones there, you know, putting putting our interests above uh, above the Iraqis, but see, seeing them as 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 disposable citizens for for some greater good. But if it was to be Britain or, or an American, then God no, you know. You know, they're the gold standard of, of human beings. They, they they must be protected at all costs. But if we're gonna st- if we're if we're gonna enter the the arena of war, you know, to 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 view these people and uh, not in equal terms as we would a Brit, if that's not racism, then I don't know what is. It's it's the most obvious instance of of inequality I c- I can think of. It's, the Iraqis were disposable, the, the civilians were killed in the name of this big project to secure British and American people and, and indeed the, the wider European population. If, that, if that's not a discrepancy in human rights between the global north and the global south, I don't know what is. It's the most clear and obvious example of it. If, if, that, is, if, that, if that doesn't have racial undertones, then I, I don't know what is. And, and and feminists, by the way, quite rightly argue that, you know, women are always forgotten about in this in in times of war. 
I, I think about that sobering moment when you realise that the history lessons that you're getting taught at school, you know, that Britain won the Second World War, you know, we won the war, we brought it home, and you grow up with this idea that, you know, it was Britain, it was Britain that defeated the Germans. And then you look at the death count of other countries and you think, Jesus, how ignorant was I? So ignorant. Mental. And, and feminists, by the way, and quite rightly, are, are saying that women are always forgot about in wartime. And these power dynamics fit a wider narrative of identifying certain people in society and feeding into a certain perception and perceived roles in, in, in who they should be in society. And if you think, oh, it's the tofu-eating wokarate again, just reading too much into it, making stuff up. I'd say, first of all, I think I've tried tofu once, and it was tidy, to be fair, but I've not had it since. If you think I can make myself tofu, then you obviously don't really know me that well. Um, and I also say, reading too much into it, politics at that level, there is always more. There is always more to the to the face value story. And we're talking about structures that we've created. We've created structures in a world that fit into this wider narrative that that that, that make people obliged to certain roles, obligations, and to certain responsibilities. You know, these age-old narratives don't happen by accident, whether people are conscious or not. You know, these continuums are deliberate. The notice, the, this notion that the strong men fight each other whilst the women stay at home, this, this is not an accidental story. It's not inherent in our characteristics as men and women. Don't believe me? Well, get in contact with Cortonvale Prison and arrange for an hour for me to go in there and that'll tell you everything you need to know about gender violence and <laughs> nothing about it being inherent uh, strength based on gender characteristics. Let me tell you that. In other words, I'd get my heat kicked in. Um, and by the way, nor is that example exclusive to prisons. There's plenty of lassies out there in Scotland that would not only fancy their chances, but they made me look like a feeble worm. Um, <laughs> talk about gender. What a load of rubbish. If you're sitting there going, oh, no danger, man, I'm the big man. You know, how would they get battered? Get your heat at your arse, honestly. Because there's always someone harder than you. But anyway, I'm getting, um, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting off track. <laughs> no, what I'm saying to you is there's a pattern of racialized and gendered discourse as a means of justifying these military interventions. You know, creating the sense of responsibility to protect. These are the words that they use was something that is it's overemphasized and it, it actually promotes the use of force. You know, it creates this notion that we have to use violence to sort things out. You know, surely it's up to the work of peacemakers to stop the reoccurrence of war. And if feminism has such a strong connection to the pacifist movement, and yet the work of feminism is also blatantly ignored in our understanding of war, then I've, lo I've lost myself in the chain of thought. It's that, it's that ludicrous. <laughs> but you can understand how ridiculous that is. Look at any coverage of the Iraq war, it's all men talking about war. The Untribal podcast is a male speaking about war. You know, if you think about patriarchy, uh, pa patriarchy, sorry, I'm getting passionate here. 
you know, this system in society where the eldest male is in charge and war and violence is, you know, it's, it's intrinsically connected here. It's all connected. What do you think about it? You know, it's any institutionalised, formalised use of force, you know, one that asserts male dominance. You know, no wonder people are drawing comparisons to gender violence. You know, women are significantly underrepresented at the table of these decisions. You know, and, and, and violence, by the way, is, is something that is of greater influence in men's lives. You know, this dominance and, and masculine ways of reasoning. Just go up to George Street at two in the morning. You know, if men have a confrontation, their immediate reaction is to fight each other. You know, the feminist movement rooted in pacifism. You know, is it a coincidence that they're shunned from the table when they're talking about the, the prospect of normalising war? You know, when people talk about humanitarian concerns, it's often just a way of, you know, justifying what they really want to talk about. You know, people think if they're successful, it doesn't really matter what their motive is. It gets the job done. But what does success really look like? And, again, you know, it's, it's a vehicle to normalise certain perceptions and identify certain roles in society. It's undeniable. We talked about that, the, the responsibility to protect principle that was created. It was created by the, the Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, right? So these are people that formalise the principle of the responsibility to protect. There's this notion that there's, a, a, albeit an imperfect, but a duty there for the international community to intervene when they see fit with violence. And, and by the way, it's a right that they've given themselves. You know, they weren't tasked by democracy to to come together and and conclude how they deal with, you know, settling peace in society. This is something they tasked themselves with. And this was made up of 12 members. Have a guess how many women were at that table. Have a guess how many weren't white. Well, it was 12 male, and there was 9 out of 12 of them were white. You know, if, if there isn't a, a, a case study more significant and evident of these narratives coming to fruition, then, you know, maybe maybe this whole fucking podcast is a waste of time. Um, but aye. No, they, want, they wanted to create this idea that they were to, to create a norm of protecting one another. And the only way possible is these massive countries like America are capable of putting it into practice themselves with strong, masculine authority and power. Yeah, and, and by the way, it's no coincidence that big massive countries like America, every citation of the responsibility to protect to date has included an intervention in which America is involved. If you think we're not paving the way for, for behaviour like what's happening in Ukraine just now, you are delusional. We are creating this normalised culture of violence and it's men tasking themselves with, with this authority. All sat at a table that they weren't democratically elected to sit at. 
and more importantly, it did nothing to shift the balance of power amongst states and the international community. If we wanted to truly decolonize the world, you know, how decisions are made, how infrastructure is built, why did we come up with something that has six nations with permanent membership of the decisions that are made? One of which is Russia, by the way. Yeah. If there was a real will and motive to disrupt that blatant balance of power, why why was it more done? I wonder if Tony thought of that. Or did he like being at that table? Was there something about sitting amongst these powerful men that gave him a sense of power? Could, could that have played any role, I wonder, into his psyche when making such drastic decisions costing the lives of hundreds of thousands of people? Could that have played into his thinking whatsoever? You know, were the, were the threats so imminent that he, he couldn't possibly conceive of going our own way with foreign policy? You know, what was the psyche behind that? You know, I'd, I'd, just to add to this gendered narrative, we, we constantly talk about the horror, horror and evil in Iraq. I distinctly remember politicians saying our heartbreaks are for the women and the children. We need to fight brutality against women. So we're, we're, we're only affording them pity now. It, it, and it's time for the men to step in and sort this out. And, and, and by violent means, uh, so be it. What we're doing by using this kind of language is creating identities, creating perceptions within society, whether whether we're conscious of doing it or not. You know, I, I try and imagine that table full of powerful men, you know, not granted to them by democracy, you know, tasking themselves to put an end to war crimes in the Middle East. And all they've come up with is a legal clause so that the borders of countries can collapse at their own discretion and they can steamroll in and put an end to it. No duty to do so, no obligation. You know, just saying, if we want to, it can be done. And guess what? We'll, we'll have saved vulnerable women. You know, aren't we the good guys? Yeah. You know, and as for the, the Americans, this, this will to make everyone think that they're the big tough guy they won't be pushed around after 9-11, is indisputable. You know, this masculine, bullying conception of how to deal with situations, this isn't a coincidence. Your language isn't an accident, it's thought about extensively. You know, real men doing the, the real jobs that they deserve to do. We should be thankful for them. You know, if you think self-power wasn't on their minds, when they were thinking about oh, protecting the, the vulnerable Iraqis, then please, please think, please think again. Because, you know, the, the, this, this elaborate narrative that we see re recurring again and again and again throughout history is, is, is indisputable. It really is. Well, thank you for listening to me this evening. Um, remembering Iraq 20 years on. I uh, hope I've given you at least food for thought. Um, I've probably left you with, with more questions than answers, but you know this is what Iraq is. It's about truly trying to understand and, 
and really remember and pay tribute to these people that went over there thinking that they were doing so for the greater goods. Yeah. And, and how relevant a conversation is that today with Russia invading Ukraine, emulating the kind of behaviour that we did, you know, irrespective of what motives driven us there. It's the same military interventions. Um, it's, 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 it's the same kind of intervention, sorry. But thank you for listening to me. Um, please follow us on Instagram at Untribal Politics. Please follow us on Twitter at Untribal News. Give the podcast a share. Tell your friends. And yeah, I will uh, see you guys for the next episodes. We'll be speaking to Sally Donald on Wednesday, what it feels like to be an MP. If you're wanting your, your untribal hit and you need more content, please visit our website at www.untribalpolitics.co.uk. There's plenty of articles out there, uh, you know, explaining um, things that are going on uh, relevant to Scottish politics today. Um, and it's and it's by regular people. It's for regular people. It's it's uh, it's all of us. And if you fancy a blether with myself, um, fancy coming on the podcast, think you've got plenty to say, please get in touch with us. Uh, my email is innis at uk, and uh, we'll get something sorted. But for now, thanks, guys. Catch you later.